We're continuing our, our study in the books of First and Second Kings, answering this question of what in the world went wrong? What went wrong in the world, you might say as well. Uh, whenever I'm in the grocery store and you see all those magazines at the checkout counter, you see some of the things that are wrong uh, in this world. And it's something I see a lot on, on those covers, as much as I try to not look at them, um, is everybody wants to tell a story about uh, a celebrity who is uh, a disaster. They want to say, oh, this perfect marriage that we made such a big deal about in last month's issue, now we want to show how it's broken up and it's fallen apart and it's destroyed. Or this celebrity who was uh, on top of the world and had the, the perfect everything, now we want to see these beach photos of them gaining a bunch of weight. They always want to show how celebrities fall and they get destroyed. Sometimes uh, on the internet, there'll be these little sidebars that say, you know, they show a celebrity, you want to know where they are now or see where they are now? And no, I really don't want to know where they are now. It's, and I'm not sure I knew where they were before. It's so I need some context. But uh, the point is, if somehow we're intrigued by uh, celebrity failure. And uh, if that's the case for you, then you'll love today's passage because it's an epic celebrity a failure that unfolds before us. Um, it's a, a great, sad story of a, of a big downfall. But in the midst of it, the main point of it all, I think, is this. Um, a wandering heart is a path to destruction. And we see how we get off a little and uh, our hearts start to wander, and sooner or later, our world unravels, and we look back and say, what in the world happened there? And so we're going to kind of explore that a little bit today. So catching us up, we've been a few weeks in the books of First and Second Kings, and I'd like to just catch you up to where we are so far, the first eight chapters. Uh, here's kind of what happened, a summary of this rise to glory of both Solomon and the kingdom. So it starts out with the, his reign is really uncertain, even though he's... Um, He's the promised uh, heir by his, his father, David. Um, the, the people don't necessarily think that or know that. Uh, he's not the oldest son of the king. Uh, his mom wasn't uh, a princess. His mom was the neighbor girl. And uh, so his, his, his start off is kind of shaky. What will happen? Well, then these uh, adversaries rise up against him, Adonijah, the older brother, and with them is Joab, the commander of the army, and, and the standing priest at that time. They all rise up to usurp his throne before he even starts it. But God squelches his enemies. And that's we saw that unfold. And then we see how God firmly established the reign of Solomon and uh, gave him a firm footing, a solid foundation in the kingdom. His reign was established by God. In fact, in chapter 4, I mean, chapter 2, verse 46, it simply says, so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Kind of a summary statement of what had happened so far. And then at the beginning of the next chapter, in chapter 3, it talks about how Solomon had this heart for the Lord. In fact, it says in verse 3 of chapter 3, Solomon loved the Lord and he was walking in the statutes of, his, of David, his father. So we get this picture of this guy who, you know, it started off kind of shaky, but he gets his firm footing. His adversaries are put under his feet, and he loves the Lord, and, the, and God is, is blessing and establishing him. 
And then we have this really key a passage where he has a dream where God visits him and says, uh, Solomon, what do you want if you could ask anything of God? And Solomon knew that the task ahead of him was too big. He knew he needed the Lord, and so he begged God for wisdom. And God really uh, loved that request, and he gave him wisdom. And on top of wisdom, he gave him also uh, wealth and power. And so the next chapter just kind of unfolds of what his wealth and power looked like, and it was uh, rather impressive. Well, then chapters 5 to 7, we saw how he started building the, the temple. What does Solomon do with all that wealth and power? He builds a house for the Lord. And we saw kind of all the details of the gold work and, and uh, going to the king of the north in Tyre to, to get labor and lumber. And the king of the north, Hiram, was just delighted to be part of this project, and he was on board. And then the culmination, sorry, I'm a little behind the construction started. The culmination is God comes to Solomon uh, as he's finishing this project, and he affirms him and he warns him. I know I'm flying. This is just a review, though. Um, Chapter 6, verse 12, this is God speaking to Solomon. He says, concerning this house that you're building, meaning uh, the temple, the house of God, Concerning this, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commands and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. So this time, uh, God appears not in a dream, but he, he uh, more face-to-face comes and he tells Solomon, this is a great thing you're doing. If you follow me, if you walk in my ways always, then I will establish you. And it's kind of this mixed, you know, affirmation and warning from the Lord. Well, then last week we saw the, the magnum opus, you know, the, the great apex, the high point is the temple is dedicated to the Lord. And God himself uh, manifests himself in the temple and shows his presence in a great cloud of, of his glory. And uh, you know, he, he moves in to the temple. And uh, it's an amazing passage where we hear Solomon's prayer um, of dedication for the temple and his prayer for the people. And it's like the kingdom, it just keeps getting up, up, up. It's greater, it's greater, it's greater. These are the absolute glory days. In that whole section, at the end of chapter 8, it ends like this. On the eighth day, he sent the people away. They all came for this big ceremony. And all the people, they blessed the king. And they went to their own homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. So eight chapters in, everybody goes home just so just life is just incredible. It's awesome. Our kingdom is powerful and are strong. Our king's a great guy. And God himself has just moved in among us. And life is really great. It's so fast-forwarding a few hundred years to the first readers of this book who are living in, uh, in exile from their homeland, having seen their temple destroyed, um, being uh, slaves in a new kingdom, they receive this information and they have to reconcile what went wrong. <laughs> Things are going up and up and up and up, and, but now we're here. What in the world happened? Today, we get that question answered uh, more profoundly than we have so far. It's like with this traje- trajectory, it's a hard word to say, 
How do we end up here? And sometimes we wonder that about our own lives. <laughs> what happened? This is not what I dreamed. So this morning, we're first going to survey in chapters 9 to 11 the rest of Solomon's reign. And that's the passage we'll be in today. And then secondly, we'll see three ways that we tend to wander. And they're the same ways that, that Solomon wandered that got him in all of this mess. So we will be in 1 Kings 9 to 11, and starting in the beginning of chapter 9, that's on two, page 290 in those pew Bibles in front of you, it starts off like this. Chapter 9, verses 1 to uh, 5. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, just as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your plea, which you've made before me, and I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart, and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne. Well, it's interesting. This brackets the temple dedication. God appears to him before, God appears to him after, and the content is kind of the same. He uh, affirms him, I heard your prayer. I have consecrated this place. And now, here's a warning for you. If you continue to walk with me, then I will establish you. And it's just God appears to Solomon and it makes this statement. Well, then again in a parallel in, in verses 10 to 25, we see uh, the construction of the temple is finished. And it just makes a statement in verse 10, at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, uh, the house of the Lord and the king's house. So the temple and the palace, uh, he finished building. Before we saw how Hiram, king of the north, he was so excited to be part of this project. And now in these verses, we see saw the king of Tyre is really annoyed with Solomon because his reward of these cities was not really that great. He checked them out for himself and they're kind of a dud. And so there's already kind of some, some tension going on. But here's where we really see a contrast. The end of chapter 9 and then all of chapter 10, we see the wisdom, wealth, and power of Solomon again. Only before, Solomon asks for what? Wisdom. And God gives him wisdom, and along with it, God gives him wealth and power. But now Solomon, instead, he leverages his wisdom in order to grasp at more and more power and wealth. The end of chapter 9, it talks about his fleet of trading ships that are just bringing in tons of gold all the time. And then chapter 10, the first part, he talks about this visit from the Queen of Sheba that just comes to, uh, to see how wise he really is and check out all his glorious uh, possessions and all about his house. And she's very impressed. Then verses tw 14 to 25, it's just this account of the massive wealth of Solomon. It's just ridiculous of how much gold and silver he has and it says silver is is like nothing they didn't even count it because it's like worthless because that's how wealthy he was and then the chapter ends by talking about his 
his, uh, his war machines, you know, his chariots and horses, and how he was amassing this great, powerful uh, force. The problem with this? Long before the kingdom was established, when they were still a wandering people, they'd exited um, Egypt, and uh, God had called them and promised them a future. And God says to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 17, He says, one day when you are in the land, one day when you have a king, uh, this is what I say about the king. Only the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. (laughs) So the kind of kings that God intended to be over, over his people were ones that were not just grasping at more and more silver and gold, were not just having all these marriage alliances and, and just marriages for fun or whatever, and they were not, um, not gathering more horses and chariots and specifically not going to Egypt to get those horses and chariots. These are all the things that King Solomon is doing. Once he has the power and money in his hands to do it, he just goes down that road Uh, as far as he possibly can. And here is what happens. The saddest chapter, the saddest passage in his life, where he turns from the Lord. First few verses of of chapter 11. In fact, 11 verse 4 says this, When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. The great king who just a few chapters before, we saw him say this big dedication prayer and, and uh, making a place for the glory of the one true God and on and on. And now just a short while later, we see that his heart is turned away from God to worship idols. His love for all these different wives turned his heart away. And it just completely starts to continues to unfold after this. His reign was established by God before, and now it's disestablished. And I look it up, it is a real word, just not one I've used before. Um, where God comes and tells him uh, in, uh, in verse 9 and, and 11 of chapter 11, uh, the Lord was angry with Solomon. Why? Because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you've not kept my covenant, you've not kept my statutes that I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I'll give it to your servant. So his kingdom that was established by God is now being ripped apart in front of him. Early when we saw his enemies stomped under his feet, now we see new adversaries, they rise up. And we're introduced to three in this chapter uh, verse 14, the Lord raised up against Solomon Hadad, the Edomite. And we hear some of his uh, backstory in that passage. Verse 23, God also raised up an adversary, Rezon, the son of Eliada. And uh, this guy was kind of a warlord, and he took up residence in Damascus and, and uh, was a real problem for Solomon. And then verse 26, maybe most significantly, says Jeroboam also lifted up his hand against the king. Jeroboam was one of the guys who worked for Solomon. He was a great worker, so Solomon promoted him, and he was in charge of a bunch of stuff. And uh, one day, Jeroboam is out in the field, and a prophet of the Lord comes and meets him there. 
And the prophet has on this nice coat, and he rips it up into a bunch of pieces, and he gives ten pieces to Jeroboam, and he says, this is what God's going to do to the kingdom. He's going to rip it up into pieces, and he's going to give you ten pieces of it, and just leave one piece for Solomon's dynasty. And uh, this was God's message to Jeroboam, but it was also God's message to Solomon. Things are coming apart. And here's how it all ends. His reign, once again, is, is uncertain. On his deathbed, the nation is coming unglued. Um, he dies with the promise that his dynasty is going to crumble. And that's how we leave him. The, the mighty one, the great, the powerful, the wise, the impressive Solomon, uh, he falls hard. And that's how we leave him. It's a gravity principle. What goes up must come down. Or the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And we definitely saw this with Solomon. So the question is, why, <laughs> why all this? Why is this in the Bible? What are we supposed to do about it? And as I just reflected on this passage over the last couple of weeks, it became clear that the way Solomon wandered that led to his failure, it's the same ways that we tend to wander. We have the very same kinds of problems. And so I'd like to just spend the rest of the time talking about those three lessons from Solomon. The three ways that we wander into destruction ourselves. And uh, I I expect that this one or more of these will will hit home for all of us. First of all, how do we wander into destruction? Well, one, we wander when we seek satisfaction apart from God. And I'd just like to read for you. I I know it's confusing these where I'm skipping all around back and forth. We're basically in 1 Kings 9 through 11, but, uh, but you have to race to catch me. And I'm at chapter 11, the first four verses. It says this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, nor shall they with you, for surely they'll turn your heart after other gods. And what happened? (laughs) Just that. It says Solomon clung to these in love. That word cling and that word love are the same words in Deuteronomy used to describe how we're supposed to come toward God. We're supposed to love him and cling to him. Verse 3, he had 700 wives, which is just, yeah, you just chuckle. It's like you can't even imagine like the logistics of all this. And he, who were, they were princesses. He got princesses from wherever. Because every girl's a princess to Solomon. And plus that, 300 concubines. So it's just completely outrageous. And his wives, they turned his heart. For when Solomon is old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. This was his downfall. This was the root of his problem, is he loved and clung to these women, and they turned his heart. Solomon, probably also the author of Ecclesiastes, um, toward the end of his life, he talks about his uh, kind of life experiments. (laughs) And one great experiment was seeing if uh, you could get satisfaction from seeking pleasure. And because he had all the money and all the power to do whatever he wanted, uh, he set out on that uh, quest 
Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1 says, um, this is probably Solomon saying this, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. What a great test. Hey, we'll see how this works. Enjoy yourself, but behold, his verdict in the end, it was all what? Vanity. It was empty. It was uh, like, like a vapor. He sought he had the money and power to gratify himself any way he wanted, and apparently he did. And he, at the end, he's like, it's just empty. I feel more empty than I started. He tested the theory that pleasure satisfies, and the answer is no, it really doesn't. No relationship, no string of relationships, no pleasurable experience will ultimately satisfy. No indulgent vacation, no perfectly grilled steak, no chemical buzz or herbal buzz or adrenaline buzz. Nothing will ultimately satisfy apart from God. It just ultimately is empty. So it made me think, where do we tend to turn when we're dissatisfied? You know, when we seek satisfaction. When it's been a hard day or a hard month or a hard life, where do we turn to seek satisfaction? We could get lost in fantasizing. We get lost in a donut. We get lost in our hobbies. But whatever it is, we're getting just more and more lost. And that's what happens when we seek satisfaction apart from God. Years ago, I read this book that was just kind of haunting. It's called Man on a Raft. It, I think it happens in World War II. A guy was stranded with several people on a raft, and eventually most of them, uh, most of them died, except one who uh, never really recovered, um, and, the, and the author. And uh, 50 days at sea, and some of the guys started drinking uh, the seawater just because it's irresistible. You know, they're so thirsty, they're just rationing. You know, you get one sip of this water a day. And so thirsty, and they started drinking the seawater, and it, it ruined them. Uh, National Ocean Service about drinking seawater says eventually you die of dehydration even as you become thirstier. <laughs> Your body needs more water to process the salt in the water that you just drank. And so what you are grasping for, this is what I need, this will satisfy me, is killing you. And this is how it is when we try to find satisfaction apart from God. We think what's going to fill that empty place in us is that pleasurable experience, and it just doesn't. And we see that this happened to Solomon, and it took him way farther than he ever thought he would go, I'm sure. Those verses right after the ones we read um, in chapter 11, verses 4 to maybe 8, they talk about how uh, his wives turned him to these specific um, religions of the Canaanites, the, the worship of the Ashtoreth and Chemosh and Molech. Well, the Ashtoreth, they, that religious group um, revolved around uh, sexual ritual practices and cultic sexuality. Molech, that uh, revolved around child sacrifices. Just horrific. How does a man of God rise to power, and then eventually end up here in just the most despicable things you could think of. Maybe think of sometimes um, in my life at different times, I've visited or been involved in like rescue mission um, ministry, and you see people and 
and they just look so far gone, and you think, how, you know, junkies and just homeless and just so unhealthy and falling apart, and you think, how did you get here? I was thinking this week, how many of those, uh, that was their plan? (laughs) How many thought they would end up there? How many mapped out a course and said, I think 20 years from now I want to be, you know, a homeless drug addict? Like nobody, nobody does that. But little choices, little wanderings, it spins out of control. And like Solomon, his kingdom fell. It just came all apart. So we wander when we seek satisfaction apart from God. Well, some of us, in this room, probably run from indulgence, or at least being seen indulging. <laughs> Maybe we will never be seen overeating or overdrinking or coming out of a questionable movie, but it's not because we're finding our satisfaction in God, it's because we so desperately cling to our reputation. <laughs> and that was another of Solomon's problems and is another of ours because we wander when we seek significance apart from God. When we seek significance from other people to, um, to establish who we are and who our value is, Solomon shifted from a concern for God's fame to a concern for his own fame. Uh, I mentioned that the Queen of Sheba came to visit, and he shows off his wisdom and his wealth, his splendor, his power. Um, the beginning of that chapter, chapter 10 now, we just went back one. It starts off like this. Now the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon. (laughs) Now it's about Solomon's fame, and he seems to to thrive on that. The temple was supposed to be for Yahweh's fame, but Solomon's like, hey, check out this temple I made, among other things. Verses 4 to 5 of chapter 10. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, and the house that he built, and the food at his table, and the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered to the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She was so impressed with Solomon, it just took her breath away. She was speechless. Now, imagine, maybe, maybe guys, imagine a queen from another land comes, and you show her around your house, and she's so impressed with your wisdom and all the things you have that she's just, I just... I just don't know what to say at all. Well, this is the kind of things that, you know, got to Solomon's head, apparently. Um, He acquired, and then it goes on to say he just acquired these tons of gold. He built this elaborate throne. It was like never uh, made in any kingdom, it says. Um, Gold and ivory. It had uh, lions on each step and just this elaborate, elaborate thing. It just goes on and on of how much he made. He is grasping at a name. Was Solomon great? It's like, well, he was great. And uh, was it all his, uh, his money and power that made him great? And the answer is no. Here is why Solomon was great. 2 Samuel 12, with Solomon after he was born, it says this. Uh, chapter 12, verses 24 to 25. And the Lord loved him, Solomon, And he sent a message to Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. 
they gave Solomon a nickname, Jedidiah, which is, which is beloved of the Lord, loved of God. And uh, Solomon was great because the Lord loved him and the Lord called him. If you're a child of God, you are great for the very same reason. The Lord loves you and the Lord calls you. And in that is your significance. We've been looking at 1 John in, on, um, at the 9 o'clock hour. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. It's like, look at how, look at how God loves you. He loves you so much, and he's called you his child. It's like, that should give us significance. Wow, God loves me, God of the universe. Who cares what the neighbor says? Who cares what, you know, the person on the street says? God loves me. I thought there's two problems with finding our, you know, our our accolades from other, other people, living for others' approval, seeking significance in people. And the first is that it's just empty. <laughs> it's vanity. We're never satisfied. Because you get the pat on the back, and then it like creates an itch that you have to keep patting. You know, oh, somebody else pat that spot. And it just goes on and on. It's a, it's a craving. It's, a, it's empty. But secondly, and more importantly, it, it draws us away from God, the real source of significance. I read an article about celebrity... Uh, drug addiction and celebrity drug overdoses. You might recognize some of those people up there. There's many, many more that could be added. Um, the author calls celebrities and drug addiction the perfect storm. And he gives a couple reasons for that. One is just this immense stress of managing image. You know, if your life revolves around being this person that everybody thinks you are, um, performing to this certain level and uh, living in the limelight to maintain that is an enormous amount of stress and second the euphoria of being on the stage when everybody applauds you and says your name and the paparazzi is after you and then you go home to your hotel at night and nobody's cheering anymore and it's that down (sighs) it's emptiness and his his theory is that that's why um, so many celebrities get caught up in using drugs to to satisfy that that high because the low is so low well a similar thing happens when we just live for others accolades it's empty find it in god seeking significance apart from god sometimes we might be driven by turning heads uh maybe showing off our house or car maybe having people repeat oh he's such a nice guy she's such a nice girl such a model citizen such a great cook a classy dresser, a leader of the community, the perfect hostess, the life of the party, the perfect Christian, whatever label it is you're trying to impress the world with, um, it'll kill you trying to maintain that. (laughs) Find your significance in God. Because when we wander, we wander when we seek our significance apart from God. Satisfaction, significance, and finally, we wander when we seek security apart from God. Turning now to the end of, of chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. This little summary of, of 
Solomon's wealth. It says Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon. Everybody's just coming to him to hear how wise he was. Every one of them, they brought a present, and they brought silver and gold and garments and myrrh and spices and horses and mules so much year after year after year. It's brought all this stuff to Solomon. It's like, ah, come here, bring it, bring it, bring it. Well, now what's he got to do? He has to protect it. (laughs) He's got all this stuff. It's all consuming, and now he has to protect it. And so the following verse says, uh, 26, Solomon gathered together the chariots and the horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in chariot cities, etc., etc., etc. And Solomon imported the horses from Egypt. So again, just what the God, just what God told him not to do, is what he was doing. He amassed this huge fleet of horses and chariots and built cities just to house uh, these horses and chariots. He forgot. Oh, there's that verse again about what God said. He forgot that it was God who established him. In the beginning, when he was kind of, it was all uncertain what's going to happen. You know, if Adonijah became king, he probably would have been uh, executed um, because he would have been a threat to the throne. His life's all uncertain. It starts off, but God put his hand on him and established him. And now later in his life, he forgets, and he's trying to cling and hold on to everything and do it himself, and, uh, and it just didn't work. <laughs> It did not work for him. Okay, is it wise to plan ahead and to take precautions and think about security and take care of your health? Yeah, these things, these things are appropriate and good to do. But never place our trust in them as if we are invincible because we've covered all the bases. It just does not work that way. Jesus tells a story about a guy who thought he covered all the bases. <laughs> he was a rich guy and... And he got so rich, he thought, I'll just build more barns to put all my stuff in. And Luke uh, 12, uh, 20, 21, Jesus says, But God says to this guy, you're a fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things he prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, he thought he had everything covered. He had all this storage of, of you know, all his valuables. And God said, guess what? Tonight. Your time has come. You're going to die. <laughs> and uh, what's going to happen with all your stuff? Well, who cares? <laughs> You're not there anymore. He thought he covered it all. So when we seek security from God, well, seeking security from God is not fretful. Uh, I think that God's woman or man and God's will is untouchable. Like he's got you taken care of. Sometimes we just get so paranoid and fret about life and what could happen and what might happen. Uh, I looked on a website for packing materials, and, uh, and one thing they sell is bubble wrap, and, and they uh, showed this picture of this guy wrapped up in bubble wrap, and, and the caption says, it's good for oddly shaped objects or something like that. So I mean, sometimes we think about life like, oh, I got to you know, oh, insure everything and wrap my kids in bubble wrap and and not go outside, and no, we don't need to fret. We don't need to fret. And second, we don't need to be foolish. (laughs) It doesn't mean we drive fast and eat terribly and put all our money in the lottery. It doesn't mean that either. But it means trusting, ultimately, in God. Some people trust in the nest egg, or in their great health, or in their great career or reputation, their good looks, 
their strength, their insurance policies, their high-tech security system, maybe their government, maybe those who don't trust the government trust in their firearms, whatever it might be, what do all these things have in common? Is they all can fail you. (laughs) Every single one. But God, in his strong arm, will not fail. Okay, do hard things happen to people who trust in God? Yeah. But we can take confidence that he is working those things for ultimately for our good if we love and trust God. And that is super reassuring. These things are not out of his hand. He has a plan. He is not just uh, hands off and letting life just destroy us. He is caring for us. And so I think trusting in God at, at, our, at the core means we believe that he knows best and he'll take good care of us. But when we get frantic and seek security elsewhere, it drives our hearts to wander. It drives us away from God. We wander when we seek security apart from God. In my guess, I I would think that all of us probably struggle with at least one of those things. Seeking either satisfaction or significance or security apart from God. And uh, I think this passage gives us a good Maybe two good challenges of what we should do about that very problem. Why is this account of Solomon's failure in the Bible? I think it's for these two challenges for us. And challenge one is uh, we can hope in disaster. That doesn't mean we hope that disaster happens. I mean, in the midst of disaster, in the midst of our own mess, in the midst of our world coming unraveled and falling apart, even from there, we can hope. Our passage today, I know it's a long one, chapter 9 to chapter uh, 11. Uh, Early on in verse 3 of chapter 9, it says, The Lord said to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. Well, what prayer and what plea was this? This was all of chapter 8 when Solomon prays to God and says, um, Lord, when, when your people experience all these terrible things and they're taken away and there's a famine and there's this mess and that mess, may they call on you and may you hear and forgive and restore. And, and God said about that prayer, I heard that prayer. <laughs> and I'm, I'm answering that prayer. You can count on that. So, from whatever your mess is, <laughs> hopefully it's not like Solomon's because that was just a complete mess but your mess might feel like a complete mess, Uh, from there you can call on God. He hears, he gives hope, he forgives, he restores, and so we can hope even from there. But way better than that (laughs) is if we heed to avoid the disaster in the first place. Wouldn't it be great if we looked at Solomon and said, ooh, yeah, let's not do that, and we just avoided the disaster altogether. Uh, back in chapter 3, we saw these hairline fractures in Solomon's life where his heart started to wander. Things were not quite right. Well, by chapter 11, we see that's a huge chasm and a complete, uh, his life is completely falling apart. So it's a time for us to ask uh, God to give us a little heart check. <laughs> where are the little fractures? Where am I starting to wander? Where am I starting to look for satisfaction apart from you, God? Where am I starting to look for significance apart from you, just wanting the pat on the back from everybody else? Where am I trying to seek my security and put my trust in apart from you and, uh, and grab those right now? Say, Lord, 
don't let me go down that route. That's, that ends in empty misery. Please stop me right now. Turn back to God with your whole heart before it's too late. So final uh, just challenge from the passage in chapter 8, 61. The prayer is, let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord your God. That's a challenge for all of us. Let your heart be completely true to the Lord your God. And uh, let's ask him for that right now.